Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... Winston Peters' self-imposed deadline to form a new government is passing tonight with no sign of a deal. Well, negotiations to form New Zealand's next government have become something of a circus. Sometime this afternoon, Winston Peters will put everyone out of their misery. There are still meetings to be held this morning. Caucuses need to sign off the deal. Neither major party, apparently has a clue which way this thing's going to go. Well, uh, some of you people said I hate the Greens and I hate Dan Shaw, and I can tell you this for a fact that I have never said, privately or publicly, a bad word about it. But there's no formal agreement, there's no sort of you know, backroom deal, if you like. Every election year, MMP has thrown up its own behind-closed-doors soap opera as the parties who make it into Parliament put their chips on the table and try to form a government. Now, these coalition negotiations are secretive, mysterious things, but they're crucial in dictating the following three years of policy and portfolios. So to shine some light into the political shadows, we thought we'd go to someone who knows what they're talking about. And while the flamboyant Mr Peters is grumping off to the side, Mr Dunn is right in there with a hand to play. John Key's first cab off the rank for coalition talks with his new government is the United Future leader Peter Dunn. I did five, which I think is more than anyone, actually, by my count, and uh, that was over a period of um, probably 15 or 16 years. That's Peter Dunn, MP for Ohariu for 33 years and a confidence and supply partner for both Labour and national governments. It's business, so you're, you're doing a deal, as you say. The exciting bit is the consequence, that you're forming a government or you're keeping a government in power. And his first coalition negotiation was... Unusual. It was the 2002 confidence and supply agreement with the Labour-led government, and that was important because it was the first time we'd ever had such a thing as a confidence and supply agreement. Previously, in both 96 and 99, there'd been formal coalitions. I was in a situation where I had a team of MPs who'd all been elected for the first time, and it just didn't seem logical to thrust them straight into ministerial positions. And so we looked for a sort of a, a halfway house, if you like, in our discussions with the government, and that's where the idea of confidence and supply agreements was born. Well, because you were in a very strong position in 2002, weren't you? Um, six, almost 7% of the vote, I think, which was much more than people were predicting during the election campaign. That's correct. And we were in a position where, uh, had, I, had I gone to Helen Clark and said, we want to be in a formal coalition and I want to have... Uh, three or four ministers, uh, she would have been very hard-pressed to say no. But it just didn't seem to be feasible to me to throw people who were not only inexperienced in Parliament but inexperienced in government straight into that sort of hot seat. So that was why we looked for this intermediate position. That's really interesting because I would have thought from the outside that you'd be looking to use that leverage to get as much as you can so you, you have to weigh up different things, do you? It's not a situation of sort of raiding the candy store. You have to think about how you're actually going to go. There's a temptation to do that, uh, but realistically you've got to work out what's achievable. And to me a couple of things were important. The, the government had gone to the election early that year because of fractious infighting within the, the then alliance, its coalition partner, and it couldn't rely on it for support. So it had gone early to try and get in before the whole thing collapsed. It seemed to me that the vote for us was as much a vote for stability, and so therefore I was quite conscious of the fact that whatever we did, we had to make sure it could survive at least three years. And 
as I say, while there were certain superficial attractions about forming a coalition, I mean, I wouldn't have minded being the Deputy Prime Minister, but the reality was that it just wasn't going to be feasible in the circumstances if we were planning to be around for the longer term. So you sort of weigh up those factors and then you say, OK, so what can we, you know, where do we go from here? Do you think it was the right decision in retrospect? Absolutely. Uh, looking at uh, the way things panned out, looking at the fact that uh, until 2017 there was never another formal coalition. Everyone went into confidence and supply agreements. I think we set the scene, and I suspect that's what we're going to see after this election. T- tell me a bit about the machinations of these negotiations. Like, How does it work? So the vote comes through on election night. Everybody... Or, or I suppose, you know, you have to account for overseas voting, but everybody has a pretty good idea of where all the parties stand. Where do things go from there? Well, it depends. Uh, if, you're, if you're a part of an existing arrangement, then obviously uh, if you've got the numbers again, you, 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 know, you pick up where you left off and you start to say, OK, you're interested in carrying on for another three years, OK, then you sit down and negotiate what the terms of that might be. After 2002, uh, the first move actually came on the morning after the election when I received a phone call from Helen Clark from memory about 11 o'clock in the morning saying, look, um, we can do this between us. Are you interested in, in, in getting into discussions? And that was, I said, well, look, first of all, um, my caucus won't meet until probably Tuesday. Um, so we'll have to have that discussion there. But my view is yes. And uh, then we can talk about the details. When my caucus did meet for the first time on Tuesday, we went through all of the ins and outs, and I discussed things pretty much as I've just discussed them with you, and we we opted for that intermediate situation, which we hadn't discussed with the Labour Party at that stage. And then it was a matter of saying, OK, well, what is it? what are the sorts of things we want to achieve through this agreement? And then we decided what they might be. So when we met Labour, uh, which was, I think, uh, the Tuesday or the Wednesday afternoon, we were able to say, look, this is what our thinking is, this is what we're looking towards, and that's when the discussions began. A small, tight team, I think there was my party president, my chief of staff and me from our side, and similarly from the Labour Party side, it was um, Helen Clark as Prime Minister, and I think Heather Simpson as her chief of staff, and there may have been, or Michael Cullen as the deputy uh, leader was there as well. Where does it happen? Well, in in all the experiences I was involved in, it happened in the Prime Minister's office. Mm. And so there aren't actually that many people in the room? No, uh, probably a maximum of half a dozen. In most cases, over the years after that, I think we got down to about three or four. Now, anybody who's seen the Shawshank Redemption knows a lot of negotiating is about using what you've got to get what you want. I suppose I could set it up for you. That would save you some money. If you get the forms, I'll prepare them for you. Nearly free of charge. I'd only ask three beers apiece for each of my co-workers. <laughs> Coalition negotiations are exactly the same, but there's no money involved. So what's the currency you're playing with? Primary policy, primary policy. And what tended to happen was that we'd, so we'd have a roundhouse discussion about these are the sorts of things we're interested in. You get a sense from the other side how they accepted or didn't accept those. Uh, and they might say, well, OK, um, we don't like your 
you know, 0.3, but we might go along with that if you would agree to our 0.2. So there's a bit of a trade-off at that point. So uh, then typically what happens is the chiefs of staff go away and sort of nut out the details. So you, the, the, the next set of formal meetings is when you come together and you've got some bits of paper that actually say this is what this is going to look like, this is what it means. And then a draft agreement is prepared, and again, that's considered. At the point that you've got agreement between the the negotiators, uh, that's the point you go back to your party and say, look, this is the deal that we've struck. Can you accept it or not? And I would always go back to um, in, in, in both 2002 and 2005 when I had other members with me go back to the caucus for the final decision and also the party board. In the case of both the National Party and the Labour Party, uh, they'd delegated effectively the approval to the party leadership. So there wasn't that sort of uh, uh, more drawn-out process. But, you know, we could, we could do all these things by teleconference in an evening. Is it exciting? Yes and no. I mean, it's, it's business, so you're, you're, you're doing a deal, as you say. The exciting bit is the consequence, that you're forming a government or you're keeping a government in power. Uh, the, more, the most interesting bit to me, though, was the sideshow, which was the media circus that, that always attended these things that you know people would be hanging around in the beehive foyer and every every time one of the leaders emerged you'd be pounced upon to be questioned as to what progress had been made and you uh, you um, you sort of uh, would make some very obfuscatory noises i remember on one occasion being chased by a camera crew or several camera crews actually right through the the foyer of bowen house because i was going out to get some lunch uh, down the road into a shop they thought this was some secret meeting taking place. I was just buying my lunch. Um, so, you know, there's all that drama. And to some extent, you play to it. I mean, in 2002, it was quite interesting. We, we, Helen Clark was uh, keen to take a, a break skiing after the negotiations had been complete, uh, before Parliament resumed. That was fine. Um, so what happened was I think the, the negotiations probably took place over about a week. And then we'd got to a point where we had... Uh, agreement, and I was going to go back to my side to get final sign-off, and uh, she was going to go away for a few days skiing. Um, but we agreed not to say anything until she came back, um, which was, as I say, about a week later, and we just hoped that nothing leaked in the meantime. It went very well for a couple of days until one evening I got home and turned on the late news, and there was a, a young journo working in the TVNZ office who'd been brought in to cover the campaign, and she broke the story. That the, you know, it was understood negotiations had been completed and, the, and that a deal was imminent. Um, but the funny thing about it was, because she was just a ring-in, no one took her seriously. And the story ran on the late news and never ran again. We kept quiet, the Labour Party kept quiet, and we carried on with our original timetable. But she was absolutely right, and I've talked to her subsequently, and I still don't know how she got there, but she did. Naturally, that made us want to track down that reporter, Heather Shields. So Heather, there is a mystery here. Are you going to put him out of his misery? All I'm going to say is that I had a source within the United Future Party, but I'm sorry, Peter, I'm still not going to reveal who it is. These negotiations are kind of about compromise, aren't they, and, and pragmatism. So you've got your vision weighed up against what you can and can't pragmatically do. Yeah, but I think that's, that's the critical point. I, I don't think you can credibly... Uh, commence negotiations if you um, are fundamentally opposed to the policy direction of the, the major party of government that you're negotiating with. I think you've got to be prepared to be 
in broad agreement. If you're not, then you have this um, ridiculous situation, which I think you, you see at the moment, where one of the, where the government's major coalition partners going out through the election campaign attacking everything the government's done. That's just simply not credible. You're in, you're in the loop or you're not. And if you can't face being in the loop, then don't start the process. I think it was 2014, before the 2014 election, Winston Peters ruled out working with United Future. What do you do in that kind of situation? Like, because if if he says something like that and then things happen, does that influence anything? Well, it can. I mean, the magic number is 61. Uh, if, if, if you've got 60 and you need one, for instance, that can be very influential if you've ruled in someone or ruled them out. But it really depends on the result on the night. I think from memory in 2014... The, the, the National Party was riding very high and in fact we had a very uh, unusual situation develop where on the night National had an outright majority uh, so it didn't need either the Maori Party Act or United Future to continue to govern. New Zealanders have overwhelmingly given National a third term with the party winning its biggest share of the vote since 1951. National won 48% of the vote and if the special votes go their way the party will have 61 seats in the 121 seat parliament. But it decided that because we'd been the government team for the previous three years at least uh, the previous six years, we should carry on and they, we would just be sort of, if you like, uh, supplementary to the majority. So what happened was, I can think it was on the Monday after the election, I met with John Key and he said, look, here's the deal. We're quite keen to carry on with you guys uh, in a confidence and supply arrangement, but because we've got a majority, we're not actually going to give you anything uh, and we're not going to ask anything in return other than just confidence and supply. If we could follow the same pattern we've followed in the past, uh, they're bound by confidence and supply, so they, they give the government stability in terms of voting for the budget, but they are only bound by their ministerial portfolios. And we were a bit taken aback by that, and then we went away and thought about it, and we thought, this is actually brilliant. We, you know, we're quite happy to give confidence and supply, uh, but everything else, of course, is on a day-to-day basis. We checked with uh, ACT and the Māori Party and found they were in exactly the same position, and they were a bit grumpy, and I said to them, well, hang on, just think about this. This is potentially a win-win for us. The irony was, when the special votes and the absentee votes were counted, National no longer had a majority and suddenly needed its partners. John Key's first cab off the rank for coalition talks with his new government is the United Future leader, Peter Dunn. Mr Key has signalled that cabinet positions are likely for Mr Dunn and for the Māori parties to Urudua Flavel. And then, because we knew what National's big priority at that stage was to change the Resource Management Act, something that ACT, United Future and the Māori Party were all opposed to. Then they came back uh, saying, oh, actually, we need you after all. Um, Now, Resource Management Act, and we were able to say to them, hang on, we've agreed to nothing other than confidence and supply. So the point of that was they'd moved far too soon. They should have waited for the final results. They just sort of, you know, counted their chickens, really. When you get that call from John Key saying, we need you, what is the power balance like in those conversations? How are you feeling? Because, I mean... The shoe's on the other foot there, right? Like, you're the big dog in that situation. Well, yes and no. Um, I think you've got to be very careful. You don't actually assume you are the big dog because I think that's when you run into trouble and you overplay your hand. But with John Key, uh, prior to 2008, we'd had some preliminary off-the-record informal discussions on a sort of a what-if basis. So, if you like, when the situation turned out that National was going to be leading the government or most likely to be leading the government, the call wasn't a surprise. But 
the discussions take place pretty much on the on the basis of equals. I mean, Parliament's a small place. You know people pretty well anyway. And I never felt uh, in discussions with either Key or Clark to be in any way overawed by the circumstances because I, I knew them both pretty well. They knew me, and uh, we basically proceeded on a fairly amiable basis. What is more important out of policy or ministerial portfolios? Oh, policy by a long, by a long shot. How the ministerial portfolios arose is, is interesting. In 2008... United Future had decided that we would meet with Labour to negotiate, but we weren't really expecting to be disappointed if those negotiations didn't go anywhere. We weren't all that keen to be um, part of a fresh agreement. And so what we did was um, thought, well, we don't because of the way the numbers were, we were only three seats at that point, we don't want to be seen to be the party that walks away. We have to make it um, so that basically Labour says, look, sorry, we can't do business with you. So we had quite a protracted period of discussion, which wasn't really going anywhere fast. And then uh, there was an agreement informally between the chiefs of staff about you know things we could do business on. And then out of the blue, uh, late in the piece, uh, came this offer of a ministerial position, which had not been canvassed previously. It was raised by Helen Clark one, late one afternoon. Uh, everything else had been agreed at that point, and we were at the point of saying, well, we've just got to go back to our side to decide whether we want to sign up to this. And she said, oh, by the way, there's one other thing. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of a shock, and I must say I took uh, probably 24 hours or so to think through the implications as to whether it was a good idea um, or not, you know, whether you're going to be too closely trapped. In the end, we decided on balance that the, the arguments were stronger for it rather than against it, and so we went back with it. But uh, I remember Helen saying to me, so that was what clinched it, was it? And I said, no, not actually. I think we were, we were pretty close beforehand, but no, that didn't clinch it, which I think was a bit of a surprise. To what extent do sort of egos and personalities get involved with, with these discussions? Like, do you have to put that personal animosity that you might have for people to one side? You do. Um, I think we were lucky over the years that, that we weren't in situations where uh, some of the more egregious personal um, traits were on display, and so we didn't have to sort of hold our breath too much, but you do. But one of the things that I was, in this, that vein, have always felt strongly about and always did was when we had reached an agreement, rather than going out and announcing it to the public, I would go to the person uh, who was going to lead the government, in other words, the Prime Minister or the Prime Minister-elect, and say, yeah, we're prepared to give you the numbers. So the Prime Minister could then announce that they had the numbers to form a government. I think it's pretty uh, demeaning to watch, as we saw at the last election, uh, the two leaders hanging by their television screens to find out which way New Zealand First had gone. We had a choice to make for a modified status quo or for change. In our negotiations, both National Labor were presented with that opportunity. That's why, in the end, we chose a coalition government of New Zealand First with the New Zealand Labor Party. Thank you very much. Any questions? It's not for number three or number four to determine the outcome in that way. It's for the person leading the government to be able to say, I have secured enough support to form a government. Really? You wouldn't want to be in that position? No, you know, I, no, no, I would never do that. I would always go back to that leader and say, look, yes, our numbers now mean you can go to the Governor-General and say you've got the numbers to form a government. And that's the way it should be, not the circus of uh, 
the, the, the tail completely wagging the dog. Helen Clark's been talking about the cannabis stuff over the past few weeks, and I think she mentioned that she wanted to legalise cannabis during her term as Prime Minister, but couldn't do so because uh, of you, essentially. I did want to, actually, but I was stuck for the last six years, I was PM, uh, with confidence and supply agreements uh, with United Future. And they specifically wrote into them that the government would make no move mm. on cannabis law reform. Well, that's news to me. Um, I, we did discuss this in 2002. Uh, I had a caucus that was very strongly opposed to um, any relaxation of the cannabis laws. I was um, a little bit more ambivalent. Uh, it wasn't clear what the Labour Party's position was. It came up in negotiation, and we agreed on a form of wording that was designed to meet all concerns, and that was that there'd be no moves to change the legal status of cannabis during the particular term. Now, that did leave a range of possibilities open about shifting to a more health-centred approach, about uh, whether you uh, went to what was known at the time as depenalisation, a whole lot of things. Um, should the government be of a mind to do so? But I do recall distinctly Helen Clark saying at the time we had that uh, discussion and agreement, oh, good, that's this, this is actually not unhelpful. This will help me keep some of my more extreme elements in check. So I find the rewriting of history now just a little bit puzzling in that regard uh, because uh, the agreement we reached on wording was pretty easy. It was one that was, um, I think, actually a suggestion from Heather Simpson, uh, not our side, and we were happy to go along with it. That's very, very interesting because I suppose that, that sort of implies that if you do want a policy win, if you feel really strongly about a piece of policy, you have to be absolutely airtight, dot the I's, cross the T's with the wording in that agreement. Otherwise, you can play silly buggers around the fringes. That's right. Or, or, or you do it the other way and you say, well, OK, in return for conceding A, B and C to you, we want your agreement to proceed with a policy to do this. Uh, OK. Uh, now, that didn't happen in that case. Uh, as I say, uh, from recollection, I, I don't think Labour Party, in the two agreements I did with Labour, that ever that sort of um, deal ever became an issue. National was more, much more inclined to say, well, we've got th four or five key priorities. So long as you support those, we're happy to concede to the things that, that you want to do as well. Last election, you talked about this earlier, we had uh, the somewhat unusual situation where the philosophically opposed Greens and New Zealand First had to, were, well, were necessary to prop up this, this Labour-led government. Uh, obviously, that's not a coalition government, but um, there were lots of concerns at that time that the government might be sort of brought down by philosophical clashes here. Are you surprised that it hasn't? Not entirely, because the incentive to survive trumps all else. Uh, and this is, the, this is the, the problem for support partners in these sorts of agreements. Uh, while, as you say, you've temporarily got a lot of power, you've also got a lot of risk. If the government falls because the support partner has walked away uh, for whatever reason, what we know is that it will be the support partner rather than the major partner that will pay the price electorally. People will say, God, they can't be trusted, they're a bunch of flakes, they're unstable, etc., etc., etc. So there's a very powerful incentive once you've entered into an agreement to make sure it sticks. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. 
You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Peter Dunn. Matewa. Matewa.